1: I can't do that. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! It's alive. I guess everyone's a tad to scared. Of. What are you looking for? You look lost, Gary. I was trying to find the remote for my light over here. Nobody's gonna see this, but I felt like yes, is an audio uh, format. Well, I should have the light on so you can see me i mean i can see you fine so uh oh yeah fake conversation uh so the last time i was in hell it looked nothing like this it was (laughs) (laughs) i don't i don't know there's a joke
0: Uh, in there about new jersey or something if i was like an 80s hacky stand-up i think or ohio
1: (laughs) right (laughs) ohio for sure uh all right well hello that was a different way of saying it. I'm really glad you said well, that like Jerry Lewis that time.
0: That
1: should, <laughs> <laughs> that, should be, that should be your character going forward. Okay, I think it would drive you nuts if I did the whole podcast. That way. <laughs> uh, anyway, welcome to Cinema Shock. This is the podcast exploring the stories behind your favorite cult and genre films. We do all the research so that you don't have to. We're the three guys telling you everything you need to know about your favorite movies and the people who made them. So the next time you're caught up in a nerdy movie conversation, not only will you know what is going on, you might actually be the expert on one of your hosts, Gary
0: Horde, And I'm your co-host, Justin Bishop. Again, just the two of us this week. So we're the two guys telling you everything you need to know about your favorite movies this week uh, for and for the next few weeks. But we are doing another Cinema Shock Roulette episode and uh, I'm calling this the cinema shock roulette extravaganza. I mean, why not? I guess. <laughs> why not? I, 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 I was.
1: I've been reading like behind the scenes stuff about like I've been reading about how to get people intrigued like right up top. So you got to you know keep your audience in the first like five seconds. Then you got to work on the next thirty seconds. The way you do that sometimes is like by telling them what they're in for. They clicked on the right thing, and I feel like that intro kind of works that way. But it's also like. All the examples always have it like, in this episode, you're going to learn blah, blah, blah. So I don't know. And I was like, what am I going to tell him? I don't know. In this episode, you're going to learn how Sam Neill fucked an armadillo on Christmas <laughs> Day. <laughs> so stay tuned. All that yeah. more this episode of Cinema Shock. Yeah, we can't, give away the,
0: we can't give away the whole, like, everything we're going to talk about. Or otherwise, what are people going to listen to the whole episode for, you know? Yeah. We're not teaching yeah. you anything. We're not teaching you a skill here. We're just giving you fun information and fun stories. It's not like we're going to teach you how to change a tire today on Cinema Shock. Now that we promised both of those things though, up top,
1: (laughs) get into some tire changing and armadillo fucking.
0: Nope. You'll have to join our Patreon for the, for armadillo fucking. And (laughs) (laughs) Uh, anyway, this week's roulette episode is another perfect example of what I, what I think works so well about this format. It's kind of why we introduced it to begin with uh, because here we are with a film by a director who, you know, outside of, this specific film has it really made anything that i care for that much uh and certainly nothing that i want to dedicate two weeks of my life like meticulously researching like you're not gonna we're never gonna do a resident evil series sorry about it not unless this not unless we run out of movies will we make a resident Wait, evil i tell series. you what
1: i looked him up just to like when we when we got into this like i was like what what has paul ws anderson look for because i because i respect the guy he's married to mia Jovovic. yeah so he seems so, like a nice guy yeah he he like interviews pretty,
0: and stuff he seems pretty pleasant you know he got nothing it, against he seems him to personally respect,
1: yeah it seems to respect film seems like an all-around good guy but i'm like wow mortal combat huh okay soldier sort of remember that uh all the resident evil movies <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh or at least most, most of, them. of them yeah most of them he did alien versus predator Yep, not uh, great. And he did and, something uh, called Pompeii
0: that I have never seen. That I assume is about oh, yeah, the volcano. Yeah, that's
1: got a, that's got Jon Snow in it. I think.
0: Oh yeah. Oh, so it's fairly recent. Uh, how about that? I happened
1: to watch both Alien versus Predator movies completely on a web before yeah. we even had to, like pick this movie in the roulette. So I can I can talk a little bit about that if you. Not really. I'm not going to talk. No. About it, we'll we'll or. wait.
0: Well, at at some point we are going to have to cover all of the Alien movies since we. Uh, have covered the first two so far, you know, and we got to finish the series out at some point, you know, I can't (laughs) wait to get
1: into it with you about Prometheus again.
0: Oh, oh, good. I'm looking (laughs) forward to it anyway. uh talking about this movie though the movie we're talking about today like this is one where i I don't think we'll ever do a paul ws anderson series that I, i don't think anyone wants that but this film specifically is one that i threw on that roulette list because it's one that i really liked a lot growing up you know it's one that i rented a lot in high school and it was honestly probably one of the first examples of cosmic horror that i was ever really exposed to and As I looked into it, you know, it's got a pretty good story behind it as well. So we we felt like it was worth talking about. Uh, So let's get into it. Today we are discussing the story behind Paul W.S. Anderson's Event Horizon.
1: At 0300 this morning, TDRS picked up an automated navigation beacon broadcasting at two-minute intervals in Neptune orbit. This is incredible. It's the Event Horizon. She's come back. Event Horizon was the culmination of a secret government project to create a spacecraft capable of faster-than-light flight. The ship doesn't really go faster than light. What it does is it creates a dimensional gateway that allows it to jump instantaneously from one point of the universe to another light years away. Where has she been for the last seven years, Doctor? That's what we're here to find out. After seven years in deep space. 18 people on board this ship when it disappeared. I want them all accounted for. Came back abandoned. Any crew? Negative. This place is a tomb. But it didn't come back alone.
0: This ship has been beyond the boundaries of our universe. Who
1: knows where it's been and what it's brought back with it. I have such wonderful things to show you. Can't leave. She won't let you. God help
0: us. Uh, and just real quick, since Todd is not here to do it, if this is your first time listening to this show, uh, we do get fully into spoilers on this show. We will be discussing the making of the film in pretty high detail. Uh, from conception to release. So obviously there's there are things that we will be discussing that you just can't discuss without giving away plot points of the film. So if you have not seen Event Horizon and don't want to be spoiled, this is your warning.
1: Go watch it, come back afterwards, and we'll tell you all about it. No, I know I fucked this up already with the whole like getting right into like what should intrigue the audience enough to stay. I talk too much, but I'm curious. They've if already what, given up. They already saying. gave up. No, I'm <laughs> just saying that if it's supposed to like get right into Event horizon, I've kind of messed up. I, I will say I do in, in the spirit of missing Todd. What do you, what do you think he would have picked for the spoiler warning for this? I'm just curious.
0: Oh man. I don't know. Maybe we should try that for next time. Something about, maybe the, the scene about where we're going, we don't need eyes. And it's like where we're going, we don't need spoilers (laughs) or something. Yeah. Something along those lines. I like that one. Or no, that would be, that would be the Johnny has the keys where we're going. We don't need keys.
1: That's what he would do, which he will also be be able
0: to do. If we ever cover back to the future, he'll be able to do the exact same line. (laughs)
1: Um, I, I was thinking something with the Latin as I was just sitting here. Just like liberate spoilers. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <or something. laughs> save save spoilers <laughs> uh, anyway uh i i guess also uh in a bit of serendipity i noticed this when i was watching it through is this movie set around christmas time so when peters is talking to fishbird i don't know why i'd use the character name and then not the character name fish <laughs> peters is talking to miller and they're talking about Miller says, I'm sorry that, you know, I tried to find somebody else to take this mission or something, but we couldn't with the short notice, blah, blah, blah. And she's like, it's fine. She's talking about her kid. And she says, we worked it out. He's going to, you know, whoever her husband is or whatever, is going to take him for Christmas.
0: Oh, yeah. and,
1: uh, and well, so it could be like-
0: somewhat around Christmas time, but they are also, I think their journey to just one way to the event horizon is like two months or so. It's like 50-something days, like almost 60 days. So it could be set in September, October or something, right? Because it's going to be two months there, two months back.
1: But then they do go into that that hyper stasis or whatever so that they jump, you know, or whatever, when they're getting to Neptune where the ship is. So by that time, it could be Christmas. It could be. Or it could be November
0: and it could be Christmas on their way home. Uh, at some point, it doesn't matter because they—they're not getting anyway. home. Spoilers. I was going to say, Spoilers. Not home. <laughs> Spoilers. Nobody is, makes it this... home for Christmas, <laughs> uh, except I, maybe I Stark. Want... they—they might have made it. Stark and uh, the
1: other guy. I can't remember. Oh, there are yeah. too
0: many names yeah. in this movie.
1: I do want to point out too. Also, uh, living on the Mood mining mars traveling to neptune on a rescue mission Lo- i love the optimism of 1997 that they thought we're gonna get all of this and they're, they're like well we got to set this obviously in the distant future what's that gonna yeah. look like what's a good time frame 50 years yeah 2047 that sounds good well <laughs> this is all going down well in
0: it starts in 2015 though right that's when we went we colonized oh, that's, the, yeah that's was colonizing
1: the moon? the moon in 2015 yeah. And I'm like, okay, it's 2023, and we're just now even thinking about going back to the moon. So. Yeah,
0: I feel like, it, as a general rule, I feel like when you're setting a movie in the future, if you don't want to seem very silly, uh, in a in a couple of decades, you need to set your movie like 300 years in the future.
1: <laughs> yeah. I was I was you know? literally telling Jennifer that I was like, it's got you got to go the Star Trek route and set this yeah. like in a time that generations will pass before we even hit that
0: exactly exactly it's like you watch uh, escape from new york now and it's set in like 1997 i think right yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so uh yeah you gotta you gotta look a little further ahead but anyway before we get into the story of the movie itself let's talk a little bit about paul anderson himself Paul William Scott Anderson. uh He was born in Walsen, Northumberland, England. That is the most British name for a town that I've ever heard.
1: He's from in Northumberland,
0: England, isn't it? <laughs> he, was born, he was born there in 1965, and by the age of nine, he had begun making movies in his backyard with a Super 8 camera, which uh, is. I feel like. I, I feel like a sense of deja vu every time i say that now because it feels like every director we talk about just about has a story where they were given a camera when they were a kid by like an uncle or their dad started making super eight movies in their backyard well throw paul anderson's name into that that pile as well so if you want to be a filmmaker and you ain't got your super eight yet get (laughs) yeah good luck yeah now (laughs) all you need is an iphone (laughs) Well, he later became the youngest person to ever graduate from the University of Warwick. Uh, He had a bachelor's degree in film and literature. His professional career began in 1990. So that makes him what? Like 25 years old or so. Uh, And it was then that he served as a writer for a crime comedy series that aired in the UK called LCID. Uh, And it was during that time working on that show that he met producer Jeremy Bolt and the two founded Impact Pictures in 1992, hoping to raise money for Anderson's debut as a director which was an action crime drama that he had written called Shopping. Shopping which stars uh Sean Pertwee who's going to appear in this movie as well and uh Jude Law in his first ever film role was released in 1994 after a battle with the British censors over the film's violence. Now have you seen have you seen this movie at all Gary? Shopping? I haven't either, and it's uh, it. I wasn't really aware of it. I I had kind of always thought that Mortal Kombat was his first film, and that maybe he came from like a commercial background or something like that, like like a David Fincher or Ridley Scott or somebody started out doing commercials. But no, he started off doing this. This is his first thing that he made. Didn't really work in TV as a director or
1: anything really prior to that. It looks and like it, for sure, like it would be something my dweeby self would have watched, so I could see. Uh, more pretentious working in the video store back in the 90s so. <laughs> right
0: well it, it kind of feels like it would fall in with like those british crime movies uh like like um like what guy Ritchie was making in the late 90s like lock stock and two smoking barrels it feels like that kind of movie does not at all feel like the kind of movie that would come from the dude who made you know all the resident evil movies at all <laughs> from, from what yeah. I, I mean granted this is me from what I've read and from watching the trailer is all I've seen, but that's that's kind of what I'm getting from it,
1: like British crime movie. It's got Sean Pertwee and Jason Isaacs in it, though. So you know. is Jason Isaacs in that as well? Yeah. He's a oh. market trader, so it doesn't look like he's got like, not, a, not big a big role. role <laughs> not anything. a big role. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, this film did not receive much of a release in the States, but it did play at the Sundance Film Festival, where it got a lot of attention uh, from some major studios who were impressed by the visual look of the film, especially considering its tiny $2 million budget. So now th- this was around the time, just to give some some context here, this was around the time when Sundance was it was starting to blow up it was really becoming a breeding ground for young filmmakers. A few years before this, Steven Soderbergh's debut film, Sex, Lies, and Videotape, had, uh, it had debuted at Sundance. It had gone on to become a major hit, made over $36 million in ticket sales on a budget of just over a million dollars. Uh, and it turned Soderbergh into ho- Hollywood's hottest new filmmaker, like, overnight. But Hollywood took notice of uh of Soderberg and all these other filmmakers who were who were debuting their films at Sundance, and they started offering a lot of opportunities to these young filmmakers, these guys who had debuted these low-budget indie features at the film festival. I'm talking guys like Quentin Tarantino, you know, with with Reservoir Dogs, uh, Kevin Smith with clerks, Wes Anderson, uh, Spike Jones, like all these guys kind of had their movies. Uh, start their careers start out at the Sundance Film Festival, and then they would start getting offered bigger budgets, you know, and Soderbergh is kind of the king of that. Now, Soderbergh, we won't get into it until probably we do a Soderbergh series, but he had a string of flops until he finally had a hit like in in a a decade later or so. But he had a lot of offers, you know, he can also add to that list Paul W.S. Anderson, who based on the potential that he showed with his debut film, he started fielding calls from Hollywood, and he would soon be able to make his big studio movie debut, and that film, his big debut, released in 1995, was an adaptation of the popular video game Mortal Kombat. Did you see Mortal Kombat in theaters? I did. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, and I loved it. I loved it at the time. I was 13 years old, so I didn't know any better. But oh, well, Gora but really, getting hit in the
1: dick. I mean, that was yeah. the height of <laughs> the height that was of like, like a up. yeah, that was that was like bad service right there. Yeah, or something. just getting the split I punch in the dick. And I
0: remember thinking that Goro looked so cool. Like it was like the top of the line in animatronics. And you look at it now and it's like the Pirates of the Caribbean at Disney world, which has been there since 1972 look better than that Goro does. I think (laughs) I do remember seeing mortal Kombat: annihilation in the theater with my best friend in high school, the sequel that Paul Anderson did not do, but I remember seeing that. And that's one of the first movies that I remember like being old enough to see by myself and walk out and turn to my friend and go like, Man, that really sucked, right? Like I was at the—I was finally at the age where I was discerning enough in my taste to like walk out of that movie knowing that it sucked. So that—that's when I, my real journey as a
1: cinephile began. I think with *Mortal Kombat: Annihilation*. Again, we're we're getting to Event horizon here, but I—I I, uh, I have not seen *Mortal Kombat* two since the theater. Like, yeah. I remember hating it there and hating that Johnny Cage died in, like, the first five minutes of the movie yeah. or something. And, then, <laughs> and, I, and I disliked it so much. And, and since then, I have tried, I think, on a few occasions that I'm like, oh, I'm going to go back and I'm going to watch them both. And I watched, like, part one. And then I'm like, you know what? I, I don't care anymore.
0: Yeah, yeah, fuck it. I got better. I got better things to do. Better ways to spend my time. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs>
1: well, despite mixed to negative
0: reviews, Mortal Kombat was a major box office success. It brought in over 122 million dollars worldwide on a budget of only 18 million dollars. Which, for that movie, for as many special effects as are in it, that's a pretty small budget. Like that's pretty. That's pretty impressive, honestly.
1: I mean, say what you will about that Goro costume. It does feel yeah. like that. that- Cost something.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. Well, the success of Mortal Kombat made Anderson an A list player practically overnight and gave him the ability to choose just about any project that he wanted to as a follow up. Uh, And he had plenty to choose from. It it seemed like producers were sending Anderson any sci-fi action script that came across their desks. Uh, He was, of course, offered the chance to direct the sequel to Mortal Kombat, but he passed on it. He was also offered the upcoming X-Men film that was being produced by 20th Century Fox and passed on that as well. And what a weird alternate timeline we might be in had he not. (laughs) There would be no MCU. (laughs) <laughs> uh, but finally, Anderson settled on a script from a guy named David Peoples, who was the screenwriter behind Ridley Scott's Blade Runner. Uh, this script was called Soldier, and it contains a lot of references to Blade Runner and could actually be considered a sequel of sorts to the film, or at least one that takes place like in the same universe as Blade Runner. So Kurt Russell signed on to star in the film, but Kurt Russell decided that he needed to take a little bit of time to build up his body, You know, get in shape, get that like muscly you know, action movie guy body that that he thought that the, the script kind of required. So him taking the time to do that delayed production. So in the meantime, Paramount Pictures sent Anderson a script for a sci-fi horror film that they'd been trying to develop called Event Horizon.
1: Anderson says about that time, I think he was mostly talking about the X-Men film. I mean, obviously, yeah. I guess, but he says uh, this probably wasn't a good career choice for me. But I didn't want to make another PG-13 film. I definitely had something dark and scary in my psyche I had to get out.
0: Wow. <laughs> That's what he said in the commentary, at least. He, he, I mean, he, he, I have seen in some interviews where he said he was specifically wanting to do like an R-rated horror movie next. And I, and I, I kind of get that. You don't want to be pigeonholed into doing something, especially moving from Mortal Kombat, which is potentially starting a franchise, it's based on a pre-existing IP, to doing another movie based on a pre-existing IP. He, I guess, wanted to do something a little more original. So then he got a hold of this script for Event Horizon. And this script had been kind of bouncing around the Paramount offices for a while before it made its way to Anderson. Uh, Written by first-time screenwriter Philip Eisner, the idea behind the script was pretty simple. It was The Shining set in space. You know, a haunted house film set on a derelict spaceship Stranded on the outstretches of our solar system, but that initial script that Eisner had turned in was, by pretty much all accounts, a little bit unwieldy. Uh, Eisner has said in interviews that uh, when he was writing it, he was he was heavily inspired by Lovecraft, uh, the idea of you know an unseen horror. And in his early drafts, while the film was still structured as sort of a haunted house movie in space, these hauntings were actually perpetrated by tentacled aliens, not unlike you know the creatures that might be found in a Lovecraft story. In this original draft, the gateway that the Event Horizon had opened, it it allowed these creatures to travel from their planet
1: or their dimension onto the ship. Now, I will say this. I, getting closer to recording, I was reading a lot more from Eisner. And it's easy to assume... I'd love to see the script because it's easy to assume that this was intended, like that he intended a monster movie based on a lot of what people say. But And I think this is more important for later. I don't think that that's necessarily his intention at all. Like, just how... It's just how other people interpreted it. This is a guy who, he, he did love Lovecraft, but he also says one of his favorite things was he loved physics and space. And he had a hobby of reading physics books all the time, he said. Mm-hmm. And so he he literally, there was a, I have a quote from him. he said, I used to smoke mar- medical marijuana. And my idea of falling asleep was I'd smoke and then I'd read a physics book because being high gave me the illusion that I could understand what I was reading. <laughs> and, uh, he said, "I did want to do a haunted house in space, and it, but it struck me with warping spacetime, what that could do to your psyche." He said, "We experience reality at a very particular scale, and I got this idea that, you know, if you're exposed to reality at this different scale, it would break you internally, and so I had this idea that it wasn't just the shining in space. I wasn't in a happy place already. My father died in a skiing accident." When I wrote the description of, for the blood orgy, the studio commented on the image of the man and the woman having sex. And then she just reaches up and rips his throat out with her teeth. And I was like, uh, they were like, this, this is too much. And I was like, I don't think that's disturbing at all. That's Tuesday. And so, <laughs> but he also said he, he also worked on this thing for a long time too, by the way. He said he used to, usually people do, you know, you get two months to write a first draft. This took me eight months. But anyway, I, I guess, yeah, there are monsters or at least visions of them in his script. But he was, I don't think he intended it for a monster movie. He seemed like he had like this internal psyche yeah. thing going on. I mean, I
0: wouldn't disagree with that. I think that he was definitely going for more of a haunted house vibe, but I think simply by introducing tentacled creatures into the film, uh, into the story, then you're sort of shifting it towards monster movie territory. You know what I mean? Yeah. Even if it's sort of structured like a haunted house movie, once the, once you throw creatures in there, it becomes a monster movie. On that point, you know, Anderson, when he read the script, he didn't want to make another like monster movie in space, because to him, there was only one space set monster movie that mattered, and that was Ridley Scott's Alien. And Eisner's script, and Anderson thought it bore just too close of a resemblance to Scott's film because it had these creatures in it, uh, which would make it not only redundant but would also invite comparisons to one of the greatest sci-fi horror films ever made. But when you watch Alien, even though we, we would classify that as a monster movie, you know, Alien is very much kind of like a, I mean, it's structured a lot like a haunted house movie. It, it really is. It is it is also a haunted house movie in space. And then it becomes a creature feature as the movie moves on. But Anderson's uh, producing partner, Jeremy Bolt, who we mentioned earlier, he agreed when he read the script, he agreed that it needed work. He felt that it w- had a terrific concept, but was very dense and overlong. And he said that the storyline got a bit lost. So Although he's not credited as a writer on the final film, Anderson personally gave the script a major overhaul, rewrote it. He reframed it as more of a classic haunted house film, heavily influenced not only by The Shining, but also Robert Weiss's 1963 film, The Haunted. The significance of the influence of these two films, uh, I think, is that they they create suspense from the unknown, from this evil presence that can be felt but not seen, uh, and an ambiguous less specific evil than the tentacled aliens that Eisner had written. So by taking those aliens out, it kind of becomes almost more Lovecraftian, ironically. Instead of this specific alien consciousness as the protagonist, he shifted the focus towards a vision of hell with the ship itself becoming possessed.
1: Now again, worth mentioning here too, when you get into this with Eisner, he says that the hell thing was very much pushed by the studio on them. He said that quote we were maybe 2 weeks from shooting paramount had sent around people in a mall in the valley and asked a bunch of folks what a black hole was and the fact that nobody in san fernando valley knew what a black hole was terrified paramount they felt like if you didn't know what the black hole was then none of the rest of the movie is going to make sense to you and it's not going to be scary and so as a result there were a lot of there was a lot of pressure to turn this thing into the devil, they said specifically, let's make it explicitly a hell ship. And he said, I was fighting tooth and nail with them the whole time on that.
0: Well, I, I think he's, well, first of all, people not knowing what a black hole is, I think is more re- of a reflection on the San Fernando education system, possibly, <laughs> than, than anything right. else. But, uh, not that I could, I'm not a physicist and I could not explain in detail what a black hole is, but I understand the concept of a black hole just through like, Cultural osmosis and seeing it in sci-fi movies for my entire life, you know, but anyway, right. I honestly think I think the hell concept is is the best thing that they could have asked for for this movie, because I think that's what makes it really unique. That's like something you've never seen in a in a sci-fi movie before.
1: Oh, I'm not dissing it. I mean, up until this point, watching the movie, I think watching it this time, I got like a different perspective on it, probably a little bit that we could get into. But I mean, up until this point, if you'd asked me to describe Event Horizon to someone, I mean, that's 100% would have been like, no, it's badass. It's like a space movie, but then they find a black hole and then it's a portal to hell. Yeah. That's (laughs) what makes it awesome.
0: Yeah, it's, it's unique. Well, with a script well on its way, Anderson began casting his film, and for the two most significant roles of Captain Miller and Dr. Weir, Anderson cast veteran actors Lawrence Fishburne and Sam Neill, respect. But a lot of the other crew members of the Lewis and Clark, which is the, you know, the, the rescue ship that's going to the event horizon, a lot of these crew members were played by lesser-known actors, at least people who were lesser-known to mainstream movie audiences at the time, although nearly all of them had years of experience as character actors. Uh, These cast members included uh, Kathleen Quinlan, who was probably best known for her Oscar-nominated role in Apollo 13 just a couple of years earlier. Uh, She plays Peters. Jolie Richardson as Stark. Richard T. Jones as Cooper. Jack Noseworthy as Mr. Justin. Jason Isaacs, who was practically an unknown at the time, especially in the States. He plays DJ and Sean Pertwee,
1: who we talked about before, who was in uh, Anderson's debut film, plays Smitty. Heisner also in some of the things talks about uh, Sam Neill, and I guess I, I never thought about Sam Neill in this way, which I don't know why, but he says he's like a very like quiet guy, but he's very like dry humor, which is how he comes across on screen when he's sure, yeah. But he said he would just like purposefully like he thinks at least he was purposefully just trying to be funny, but he said like every fifteen minutes there would be a runner coming to you saying, Sam Neill has questions about the script. Sam Neal has a problem with something here. And uh, he said that even one time the runner came to him and was like, Mr. Neill says he has an emergency or something. And he's like, okay, what's going on? So he like runs over to Sam Neal, and he says, Sam Neill's like, oh, hello. My agent sent a lovely binder for me to put my script in, but it's sized for American paper. And this script, all the holes are in the wrong place. So can you please make me a new script to fit my beautiful binder that my agents. <laughs> he's like, he's what? Just, no, he's just, he's just fucking with him.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah. uh, I'm just going to um, give this poor writer an anxiety attack for no reason. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Simon Lamont. Uh, who's he's the art director. He's a, he says that the only person he ever had a problem with was uh, Pertwee who he said uh-huh. for some reason was just very obnoxious about asking for props, all kinds of different items that, weren't even in the script or anything. He said, I think he just wanted to make the most of his screen time or something. And he wanted yeah. things to do. <laughs> <laughs> I like that guy, Sean Pertwee.
0: I haven't seen him in a lot, but I know he's, he's one of the leads in dog soldiers. And I'll always, I always remember him from dog soldiers. Cause I think he's really great in that movie. So the film began being designed and sets started being built uh, before the script was ever fully completed. Uh, Even without a completed script though, Anderson knew that the scale of this film was going to be huge and that they would need to find a film studio big enough to house the enormous sets it was going to require. The location that they chose was Pinewood Studios, the legendary British film studio located about 18 miles from London. Now we've mentioned the studio a few times over the years uh, on the show because several movies that we've talked about have been filmed there or at least partially filmed there but over the years the studio has hosted some of the biggest film productions in the history of the medium including uh, several star wars movies hammer horror films mission impossible stanley kubrick filmed full metal jacket and uh, eyes wide shut there uh, harry potter movies have been filmed there some some of the marvel movies have been filmed there the dark knight little shop of horrors uh, and James Cameron's Alien. So, like, se- like I said, several movies we've talked about on the podcast. Uh, but most notably, it has been a filming location for the James Bond film series since the series inception in 1962. And in fact, the largest stage at Pinewood Studios, and which is actually one of the largest indoor sound stages in the entire world, is known as the 007 stage. And it was there on the 007 stage that the Event Horizon itself would be constructed. So to create the design of the spaceship, Anderson enlisted production designer Joseph Bennett. Now Bennett was, uh, he was pretty young at the time. He was kind of, I want to say he was just getting started in his career. He had a hand had a handful of credits to his name at this point. He'd served as a production designer on a handful of TV shows and a couple of movies. I think he'd done two movies before this. But notably, his first two films were Richard Stanley's Hardware in 1990 and then Stanley's follow-up, Dust Devil, in 1992. Both films that if you've seen them, uh, you'll know that they include some incredibly strong design elements despite being filmed on incredibly low budget. So they, this is a guy who can work a lot with a little. Well, Anderson, who always has a lot of input in the design of his films, and he's even said to, uh, by some, he's kind of described as an unofficial co-designer on most of his films. He wanted this to look unlike any other space movie that had come before. His vision was to turn the event horizon into a gothic haunted house. Those are his words. Uh, One that was designed to look like a gothic cathedral, only one made of steel instead of stone, and one that specifically drew from design elements from the most famous gothic cathedral in the world, the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. I think he got inspired by actually visiting the Notre Dame and kind of thought to himself, you know, that this would be a great translation for the event horizon. So after he made this decision, he took his production team to Paris, to the Notre Dame, and they scanned the building's architecture. with. They had this... I forget what he called it. It's like a type of camera that can scan the actual texture of the building and everything, you know. So he scans the building into a computer and then they kind of deconstructed each piece of it and used exact design elements from the church and kind of repurposed them and incorporated them into the spaceship's design. It's a pretty neat concept, you know. Uh, And I I think it's one of those things where when you watch the movie, nobody's going to think, hey, that looks like this piece from from the notre dame like i don't think you're gonna get that but i do think it adds to the overall like it gives a very specific vibe that you don't often get from a movie spaceship you know like it's very different
1: from what you would normally see from a movie spaceship see i saw it and i thought for some reason it looked like the klingon bird of prey or something you know not to be well it does have those like, like it had the wings pro- the side. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Which so I, I could kind of see that, but and that that's actually an element that was pulled from the Notre Dame because the yeah. Notre Dame is shaped in the form uh, in like a cruciform, as as a lot of Gothic churches are. They're shaped like like a, like the cross. So yeah. they actually took that same design for the Event Horizon and they elongated it because that that uh, hallway is so super long, you know. But the essential. Shape of it is the shape. If you were to like look at a bird's eye, like from the very top, like a Google Maps view of the Notre Dame, that's the general shape you're going to see is that shape of the cross. But they also, you know, if you notice in the in the med bay, I think the most obvious element to me, at least, is those columns, those flared columns, those pillars that you see in the med bay. That's a very classic Gothic architectural element. Uh, But they also, you know, they based the Event Horizon's antenna dishes or the antenna array on these gargoyle clusters that are at the top of the Notre Dame. And then the intricate steelwork that we see, all the little lines and stuff that you see on the steelwork on the outside of the ship are actually based on the designs of the cathedral stained glass windows. So, again, this is not something you would necessarily think of while you're watching the movie. But I do think it's really cool that they incorporated all of these into the film, especially considering all the kind of religious overtones of the film dealing with, you know, hell and all that kind of stuff.
1: Oh yeah. It's, it's, it's wicked. looking if you look at like an aerial view of the cathedral, like it's definitely got, I don't know. I think the hallway is like the only weird part, but that's, there's like a courtyard I think in the, in the cathedral, like separating like the head of it and then the, that little back area. So it makes sense. Like it looks, it's kind of wicked. You can totally see it like just sitting down there.
0: Yeah, it's, it's pretty neat. So while Bennett was just getting started on his feature film career as a production designer, several of the other artists who Anderson hired for Event Horizon had years of experience and some major sci-fi bona fides. Uh, for instance, his cinematographer was Adrian Biddle. Uh, we've talked about Biddle on the show before a couple of times, actually. But this is a guy who got his start working for Ridley Scott's advertising company. Then he followed Scott into the world of feature filmmaking, first as a clapper loader on The Duelists*, and then as a focus puller on Alien. And he landed his first job as a cinematographer, thanks to a recommendation from Scott himself. And that movie was James Cameron's Aliens, uh, which is a fantastic looking movie. So, like, hell of a cinematographer, you know. So... As a huge fan of both Ridley Scott and the Alien franchise, you can certainly see why Anderson would want to hire Biddle to shoot Event Horizon.
1: It was American Cinematographer magazine where I saw some of this. There was a quote from Anderson uh, that I just thought was interesting. They talked about, uh, they called it techno-medieval. Was the look that they were going <laughs> yeah, that, that, for?
0: It fits. Yeah,
1: yeah. He says when the lights are on, everything looks very technological and very spaceship-like. But when the lights go off and the haunting begins, it starts. If you start looking at the shapes and the architecture, it's got this very medieval look. We extended that techno-medieval design idea into many aspects of the picture's look as possible without without trying to specifically rub the audience's nose in it, he says. also like to uh, just forbid t- some of the colors that they use, like in the... Re- the he was trying to u- utilize the colors to make it uneasy for people watching it. He said he used a lot of sepia brown coming up from the floor that he thought made everything feel uncomfortable. And then there'd be these flashes of red. He also talked about using a lot of green in this movie that he says uh, cinematographers generally shy away from green because it's not pleasant. But on Event Horizon, I used gels to produce a nasty, horrible green that you get from the fluorescence. He said it just felt like it would make you kind of the sickly feeling that something wasn't right here
0: that's not unlike what they were doing in the matrix you know a couple of years later remember they use like that green kind of look when you're inside of the matrix to convey that there's just something off oh, right, or not yeah. right about it you know it's funny as you mentioned them talking about the atmosphere that they were creating with the ship when i was i was rewatching this last night and i turned to bunny and i was like why did whoever designed the ship like in in the world of the movie whoever created designed the event horizon to go out into space why did they design it to look so spooky like what was their intention? because every (laughs) corner of that ship you walk if i walked onto that ship and broad like all the lights fully on i would still turn around and go like this fucking place is haunted (laughs) because (laughs) everything's made of everything's made of spikes (laughs) sorry
1: yeah i was gonna say i the only thing i could think of when i was watching it was like this is like the closest thing I can compare it to is again uh Klingon stuff. Like, sorry, yeah. Todd, that you're not here for this, but no, it's just like who else would just have like brutalist design like through yeah. this whole thing? Yeah. yeah, those doors you couldn't like you know, flatten off those spikes like no. to lock in place, in lock doors. Them in, yeah. yeah. Like they're just designed for somebody
0: to get caught in and just <laughs> ripped in half. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, well, anyway, so that Adrian Biddle's just one of these behind the scenes guys who, who uh, you know, came from a sci fi background. Uh, but there are other ones. You know, you, the uh, the costume designer that Anderson hired was Academy Award winner John Molo, who had worked on the original Star Wars trilogy as well as Ridley Scott's Alien. And Event Horizon special effects supervisors were Richard uh, Uric and Neil Corbold, both veterans in their field. Like, Uric specifically, he had worked on 2001 A Space Odyssey. Star Trek The Motion Picture, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and Blade Runner, among a lot of other ones. But one thing that all of those movies have in common, aside from you know all being certified classics, is that the effects in all of those have held up tremendously, even after decades of advancements in the visual effects field. And that's something that Anderson wanted out of this film. So when he asked Yurisich what the secret was, Yurisich's answer was simple. He said, we did stuff for real. So with that in mind... The goal was to film as many of the effects for Event Horizon in camera as much as possible. Whereas now, uh, hell, even in 1997, remember, this is is post-Jurassic Park, so there's a lot of CGI being used. So even in 1997, elements like the spinning gyrosphere and the revolving tunnel would likely be done with CGI. But on this film, they were life-size, physical pieces of the set, like that core, the gyroscopic core of the ship, they built that thing full-size on a set in London. A-, a lot of the fire and the smoke that we see in the film, it's all real. It's not CGI fire, except maybe on the guy who's like constantly on fire. I think that's probably CGI fire. But other, most of the other fire is real. Uh, you know, if uh, if an actor was floating through zero-gravity environments, they were really flying through the air with the assistance of wire rigs. There's
1: so much in this that's just wild and it makes you miss like a lot of that practical stuff. And like you said, all those movies that you mentioned, like I I still am in awe of 2001. Every time. Every (laughs) Every time time I I watch it, it blows my mind. It's so ridiculous. But that tunnel that's wild uh that the meat grinder yeah actually yeah like actually building that thing up for like uh the they said you know i think neil corball said they had like you know all these different axes that they were spinning on he had to tell everybody specifically like don't look at the tunnel just focus on the end of the thing he's like because it'll it'll fuck you up like you'll you'll just get you'll get lost like just yeah you'll fall over everything happening (laughs) yeah and and eisner says uh the original script it was completely zero g and they wanted to keep it that way but then the studio saw the budget for all of the rigs and everything and they were like magnetic boots everybody (laughs) now has magnetic boots yeah (laughs) so yeah in um, one interview
0: i saw with with anderson he was like yeah if we had done like zero grab for the entire every scene that said on the event horizon, we'd still be making this movie now. And this was an interview that
1: came out last year. <laughs> but yeah. uh, they because about it is the, uh, it's
0: difficult, you
1: know. Yeah, you you mentioned the gusts of smoke and everything. I mean, they were using like fire extinguishers for that. So they were talking about the poor actors; they were getting like oxygen sucked out of them because these are CO two fire extinguishers. Uh, Paul Anderson said in like, the commentary, I think, that they, they'd be gasping for breath in some scenes. It was like it was safe, but it was like it actually kind of worked because it kept everybody in such an extreme position that it probably helped their performance along a little bit. Yeah. That it was messing with them. But there was one story Neil Corball told where he said, I remember we had to do a fireball down the revolving set. He said, we had to make up some propane canisters with a big release valve and we filled it up with liquid propane and then you pressurize it with nitrogen which is an inert gas so that you can't get a blowback so then all you need is oxygen to create an explosion and basically he's describing all of this stuff and he's like but basically we just uh we have a pilot burner in front of it then we just shoot this liquid propane out and it hits the pilot burner just sends the explosion running down the hallway and oh. uh, he was like anyway you probably couldn't do that today he says. <laughs> it's like, it's well, well, they uh, didn't
0: do it with Lawrence Fishburne there. They composited those scenes together. Because I, I saw some behind-the-scenes footage of Lawrence Fishburne running through the tunnel with the fire behind him. And they yeah. basically had a giant light that was like on a dolly right behind him that, that took up the entire tunnel. That way the light would still be reflecting on the actor, you know, as he ran. And then they composited the fire from that other sequence that they shot they composited those two scenes together to make it look like he was running in front of a real fireball which obviously they're not going to have Lawrence Fishburne run in front of a giant fireball for real uh, but they also- did put him on wires and they did hang him upside down like that scene where he has to rescue Mr. Justin from you know when he when he gets sh- he's being decompressed out of the the airlock you know and he has to grab him in space like they did that by filming him like hanging upside down in a in a a set that they had built like on its side so that he could really be flying towards him. Then they, they just did wire removal on it.
1: They talked about how professional Fishburn was on the set. Anderson says, like, he was always in his script. He was making all these, like, super detailed notes about everything and uh, what his thoughts would be, where where his mind would be in this particular scene, yada, yada, yada. And he had, like, some parts that he had written, like, NAR, like N-A-R. He said, Anderson, said, <laughs> I finally asked him one day, I said, what, what is NAR? Like, why do you keep writing that? And he said, oh, it's no acting required. like Like he had just figured out the scenes where like yeah i know
0: i'm all i am going to be scared shitless in this scene (laughs) (laughs) right he was just like he just knew he would be
1: in a spot and they said the suits were uncomfortable too they said uh eisner said he'd be like walking around he'd hear eisner and he'd like turn around it'd be lawrence fishburne in the space suit he was just like you you did this to me (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> um, i don't know they had a f- uh, bunch of fun stories but those like those you wouldn't get away with it now stories i mean if you remember the art director guy said simon lamont talking about they had with all that smoke and everything that he finally went to like health and safety and said hey we need masks for these guys and uh, they said yeah masks aren't gonna help with what you guys are doing in there you need respirators Is what you need he said okay well so are you gonna supply respirators and they were like nah studio says it's too expensive <laughs>
0: that's not the, That's not the, That's not a line in the budget. <laughs> yeah.
1: And Lamont was like, eh, "You probably wouldn't get away with that
0: now. Probably not. I feel like uh, maybe some of the SAG would probably frown." upon that (laughs) (laughs) these days but but yeah i mean this was you know you've got your actors doing your own stunts you've got real elements of fire and smoke like while while you you read about the making of this film and it seems like it pretty much went off without a hitch there were no major issues during the filming Uh, it was overall good experience for everyone involved but it was not an easy shoot like it was physically demanding between the discomfort of of you know being hung from wires wearing these big heavy space suits sets filled with smoke like you said and rotating tunnels that fucked up the actor's equilibrium. Uh, Like it was not an easy shoot, but it was a smooth shoot Uh, and it could be pretty taxing at times. But when you, when you read or watch interviews with the cast and crew, it seems like everyone was having a great time.
1: Another random story. I remember one of my favorite ones was uh, Jason Isaacs talking about how to get a body mold taken of himself And he said, I had to like have my arms spread out. I leaned on this big cross. He said, it was just like in this big open warehouse. And there were all these like workers going around like little worker bees. And they were in these little suits. And he's like, and I had my, it was just me and my underwear on a cross. And like, they're gonna do this body mold. Then one of them comes up and says like, hey, you know, you can be naked if you want to. Kate Winslet's been in here and she just, she went bare and he was like, okay, good for Kate Winslet i'm not am not doing that i'm keeping I'm my underwear my butthole.
0: Uh,
1: you guys do not need like, a mold of my butthole yeah he was like but it was so weird and just strange and he's like and afterwards though he was like i i was i was wondering i was like hey can i can i keep this thing like i really like to have it and they're like man this costs a fortune no you cannot keep this and uh he said i can't remember the amount they told me but it was more than i made like to, to the movie. <laughs> And, what were they uh, going to do with it? I and so he, he goes on to say, he said he was talking to his dead girlfriend, now wife. And he's like, yeah, they were, I was hoping they'd let me keep it, but they wouldn't. And she was like, what did you fucking think you were going to do with it? Did you want to put it on like the dining room table or something? Like, you cause it's not
0: it? just, it's not just a mold of Jason Isaacs. It's Jason Isaacs with like his body ripped open and his guts falling out is what's used in the final <laughs> film. <laughs> Right. now maybe the maybe the life cast is something else, and they have that with those they can reuse life cast they can reuse like if you, if the actor doesn't change physically in a dramatic way and they need to make something for him for a future film, they've already got a life cast, so I wonder if anyone from that place does have that life cast of Kate Winslet's butthole just hanging on their wall at home <laughs> uh but anyway, yeah it, it does seem like in general everyone you know they were having a good time, they were having fun, but those great times did not seem to extend to the film's post-production period. So when it came time to edit the film, Anderson agreed to a six-week editing period, instead of the standard 10 weeks that directors are usually given to submit a first cut, as guaranteed by the Directors Guild of America. The reason that Paramount wanted the film finished as quickly as possible is because they wanted to get Event Horizon in theaters before James Cameron's Titanic, which was then scheduled for a September release. Now, I found some... I don't know if it's conflicting information or if it's just it's been 25 years since all this happened and people's memories are hazy right (laughs) but that that info is something i got from i found an oral history on the film that i think inverse posted a while back however uh, i found an interview with with paul anderson from vulture from just a few months ago and anderson told the story then a little bit differently he's in that interview he explains that when paramount was producing titanic you know if you go listen to our titanic episodes multiple episodes on that there's a lot of history but basically it was a co-production between paramount and 20th century fox so this was supposed to be paramount's like big summer movie release titanic was, was supposed to be their big summer movie release with event horizon being paramount's fall release you know release a spooky movie just in time for halloween makes sense right but titanic got delayed until christmas because it was taking forever to make and then paramount was suddenly left without a summer release, which forced Event Horizon to move up its scheduled release date. So they, they kind of panicked. They're like, oh shit, we don't have a summer movie now. You need to get Event Horizon out in time to be a summer movie. So anyway, way you look at it, Event Horizon's failure at the box office could probably be blamed on James Cameron, whichever versions of those stories are true. So during the filming of Event Horizon... Anderson would usually spend his weekends working with the second unit who, among other things, were responsible for shooting what's known as the blood orgy scenes and the brief glimpses of hell that we see in kind of quick bursts throughout the film, especially towards the end of the film. Now, if you've seen the movie, you can probably guess what those blood orgy scenes are. Uh, There's only only a a little bit of footage in this movie that could possibly be, be described as a blood orgy, but it's these scenes that they see on the monitors, you know, the monitors from the original crew of the event horizon and you only see little bits and pieces of it and it's pretty um i mean it's very graphic what you see and obviously we'll talk about it in a minute but obviously these scenes were much longer to begin with but when they went to film these scenes the extras all needed to be nude so they actually hired a bunch of adult film performers to be in it a bunch of porn stars uh to be in it because they're like well obviously they don't mine being naked in front of cameras i guess but from there the casting requirements got a little more specific like they hired people who were missing teeth for shots where someone gets their teeth knocked out so they would hire someone that actually they would put like s- stunt dentures in them basically so they could see their teeth oh, get knocked yeah. out and they also hired amputees for images of crew members who were like had their limbs chopped off uh so it was a, it sounds like a pretty pretty wild shoot on the set of
1: the blood orgy yeah, the uh, not you don't get a lot of blood orgies these days. Not like in the nineties. <laughs> no. uh, for 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 inspiration's sake, uh, they were trying to get some specific looks. Uh, Anderson says uh, we started channeling the work of uh, Hieronymus Bosch and uh, the photography of Joel Peter Whitkin. Uh, if you've ever looked at those guys' stuff, and I did just because of reading that, uh, just to kind of get an idea, it's like especially in that Joel Peter Whitkin, his photography. It, Seems to deal a lot with amputees, or like there's even severed head stuff. Oh well, like it's a, it's very you you can tell. And Bosch has that like just both have like these like weird, I don't know, just weird looks that like you want to stare at it. They're almost horrific, but you're also like kind of drawn to like looking at them. He had to see what. What what's happening in this scene right
0: now? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not familiar with that photographer, but I am familiar with Hieronymus Bosch. Uh, uh, some very famous depictions of like of hell, basically, uh, really incredible stuff, honestly. And I could definitely see the influence. I mean, he's not Anderson's not recreating like specific imagery from any of Hieronymus Bosch's stuff, but I think it's the overall like feel of those paintings that he's trying yeah, to I convey.
1: Th- i think it's it's exactly like like we were just saying like it's, it's the idea of just this something almost horrific or it's very startling to see it first and then you're like i gotta like what's what's happening here i think he actually in, in one thing i already said it, it repels you and attracts you at the same time and so, oh yeah um but yeah they they just thinking about post-production they even tell the story you're talking about doing stuff on the weekends and everything uh like uh, they, they talked about bringing in Jolie Richardson one Saturday. Uh, they said it was like a last minute thing. So they could wrap her up in the barbed wire and strap her to a chair. And uh, they start pouring blood all over her. they said they're like talking to her about like, so what's going on for you today? You know, what's up? she's like, well, it's actually it's my birthday. And we <laughs> had some plans to go out and do a bunch of stuff, but. I don't know now. (laughs) I guess this is it. I guess this is what I'm doing.
0: (laughs) Happy birthday, I guess. Well, once uh, principal photography wrapped, Anderson was supposed to begin the editing process, but he still had two weeks of shooting left with that second unit, which meant that his post-production period was further shortened to only four weeks. So he was supposed to get a guaranteed 10 weeks. He agrees to six, which he shouldn't have done, but he was a young filmmaker and probably didn't push back on that the way he, he could have, because it, it was guaranteed to him by the Directors Guild of America. Uh, but now he only has four weeks. So he's got less than half the time that he normally would have at minimum. Most directors are taking like 16, 18 weeks, you know, to, to edit the first cut of the film.
1: Yeah. And I feel like we've even said in recently with somebody they were talking about, like the movie is made in editing.
0: Right. Yeah, exactly. A lot, a lot of directors feel that way. But with such a short time in which to assemble a cut, the best they could do was a rough cut, which at two hours and 10 minutes was too long and featured a lot of scenes that were you know, poorly directed or with less than stellar performances. Problems that could have been resolved had they had more time to do another pass in the editing suite. You know, they could have found another take that was done better. Uh, but they didn't have time to do that. So this rough cut, you know, it all. A great, this rough cut also had unfinished special effects, had a bad sound mix. Like it just was not anywhere close to a finished product. But regardless, Paramount decided to use this early cut in their test screenings. And, you know, big surprise, audiences were decidedly not into it. You know, they give out those little cards, like the grading cards at the end, and like they came back with abysmal results. Like the audiences hated it. So in addition to the the poorly assembled edit, this early cut of the film featured copious amounts of gore, so much so that according to both Anderson and Jeremy Bolt, uh, several members of the audience fainted during these test screenings. And adding to an already bad situation, it seems that the executives at Paramount had no idea just how gory the film was going to be. See, they'd been watching the dailies, but they'd been watching them in, you know, in LA. They're not there in London when they're filming. They're sending the dailies to LA. And they'd been pretty pleased with what they had seen. Uh, they're like, oh, this is cool. It's kind of a dark take on Star Trek or something, right? But they'd stopped watching the dailies before all the gore scenes and like the blood orgy scenes had been filmed because those were all done at the end of the production schedule.
1: I want to see all this stuff, but yeah, apparently super violent and gory. And you can hear people, uh, or see interviews with people talking about it a little bit. Uh, Heiser even says like, uh, uh, he's like, there's one scene I've even been in for a fraction of set of a second. He said, they had me over a control. He says, and he's like, I'm supposed to be eating the guts of somebody's stomach. His literal quote is like, He's like, I'm supposed to be eating the guts of somebody's stomach, but the angle I'm at, it just looks like I'm giving him a beach. And he's like, if you don't see any blood, you just see me bobbing up and down on this guy. And it looks like whatever I'm doing, I'm really enthusiastic about it. <laughs> um, oh, that's good. <laughs> uh, but uh, he said, he says, uh, uh, or Paul, Paul Anderson says, uh, in, the, in the in the theater, there's like stuff with him and are talking about it. But he says like one of the execs from Paramount, does lead up and say like uh but we're the studio that makes star trek man <laughs> as if he's just sullying the name of star trek by even being
0: somewhat connected to that studio <laughs>
1: yeah eisner eisner says the students at ended. he was like man that theater was so quiet i don't know it's like uh the uh, I don't know that you see like other, other people though, they say this, but I remember Jason Isaacs in one of the things saying that, like, you know, he thought more of what happened in hell would not make the film better. It was like probably yeah. only worse. Uh, he says he feels like, you know, you get more of your imagination involved with the way it turned sure. out, but yeah. I don't know why they show it to people unfinished though. That always drives me nuts. Like to yeah. all. Yeah.
0: It's weird. It's It's one thing to show it to like, the the executives at the studio but like if you're gonna judge an audience's reaction they should be judged on the reaction of uh, at least a somewhat finished film i mean the the point of test screenings is to figure out what parts of it are working and what are not but you can't really judge what's working if you give them an unfinished product you know like at least i get i get that sometimes special effects are still being worked on but give them a chance to edit it the way that they think it should be done you know right because there are test screenings where the, I mean, there are some movies where the effects are being worked on until like a, a couple of weeks before the movie comes out, right? So I get that you can't always do that at test screenings or even have a temp music mix, but give them time to like at least do an initial real edit, not a rough cut of the film. Because the rough cut is like, it's just that. It's rough. And it it is it is designed to be like the first step in then going on to refine the editing of the movie. Right. So it's really not fair, honestly. But, uh, you know, shocked by how gruesome the film was, Paramount forced Anderson to cut the film down to a shorter runtime and to cut out a lot of that gore. But because of his rushed post-production schedule, Anderson says, you know, he believes that when he made this new cut, because he's still on a, a, a quick time frame here, he thinks that he went a little bit too far. Without the benefit of time to mull over the cut, he, th- he thinks he cut out too much, and he later explained that he felt that the movie could have been probably it probably could have benefited by leaving about 10 more minutes of that excise footage in including some of the gore that was removed not necessarily all of it he kind of agrees you know like with what Jason Isaac said in that quote from you that you said yeah that it is nice to leave some of that up to the imagination but he thinks that some of it that was taken out could have benefited by being put back in. But unfortunately, that's not what happened. And the Compromise Cut was the one that was released in theaters. Uh, it had music by Mike, Michael Kamen. We've talked about him enough on this podcast over the years, and I don't think he needs an introduction here. We talked about him pretty recently, I think, actually on Polyester, I think. Oh, he, yeah. he did Polyester for John Waters. He did a lot of David Cronenberg movies. But for Event Horizon, Kamen actually collaborated with uh, uh, an EDM duo named Orbital, this British you know, electronic duo, who had supplied tracks for Mortal Kombat and shopping for Anderson. I think actually the same track. I think this, he used the same song in both of those movies, if I remember right.
1: Boy, I tell you what, nothing makes a movie 90s uh, until you get that EDM soundtrack in there. Dude, it's what? the most
0: 1997 opening like song of a movie that you could possibly imagine. <laughs> it is.
1: I'm like, man, this this whole... I was like, it, it automatically... I don't know, nowadays... It's like the entire Spawn soundtrack. Yeah, <laughs> the, the I'm whole like, what soundtrack. is this? That was the most disappointing thing. Like when I first started watching it, it's been a little while since I've seen it, so I was like excited to dive in, and I'm like that that shit hits, and I'm like, what the hell? Like, yeah, this, watching... yep, this is this is the late '90s. <laughs> yeah, I was like, now now it feels '90s. Like this. Is yeah, I mean, the Matrix has some of that was. in it
0: too. You know?
1: Yeah, it is not like I'm, I'm not trying to hate on the style or anything necessarily, but it just. I don't know. There was something about movies in the nineties that they like leaned into this and you can just tell just like the early two thousands, you posted that a uh, clip of the discord earlier about, a, you know, Oppenheimer ending with what I've done. <laughs> yeah, with the Lincoln about-
0: park. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, well, event horizon was released in theaters on August 15th, 1997. And it was to put it mildly a major flop. Probably didn't help that like a week or two earlier, I think Air Force One with Harrison Ford had come out, which was like a huge movie. But uh, Event Horizon only grossed $26 million in the US against a production budget of $60 million, which is a pretty high budget in in 1997. And it made an additional $16 million internationally, bringing its worldwide box office gross to only $42 million.
1: What a bummer. Uh, But that's... And again, also, I mean... I know Anderson talked about you. You, you covered this already, but the, uh, you know, wasn't it even. It, it's not a summer movie. He, he was talking about that. He was like, "This is this kind of killed me." That he's yeah. like, "This is meant for fall." This yeah, is, it's a Halloween movie. Come on. Yeah, but uh, Jason Isaacs uh, and, and these interviews are read with him, he tells another funny story about. Uh, he said the producer Larry Gordon uh, hired a limo for the to do uh he said this is something he traditionally did on lots of films where he would like take some of the cast and hang out with them and like drive them around to different cinemas on opening night and uh, let them get to the back of the screening or whatever and let them see the audience reaction and everything. And uh he said they went to the first place and uh he said a- afterwards they he went to the box office to talk to him and then he said he came back from the box office and got in the limo with him. It was like, Why don't we just go for dinner, shall we? <laughs> <laughs> like they were going to walk in there. And there were four
0: people in the theater. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, thankfully, though, the movie was a huge hit with the critics. That is a lie. Uh, the critics also hated this movie. Uh, in his two star review, Roger Ebert said, Quote, this is a such a dumb quote that I had to include it. But <laughs> he says the screenplay creates a sense of foreboding and afterboding, but no actual boating. <laughs> what the fuck does that mean, Roger? <laughs> <What>? uh, Jonathan <laughs> Jonathan Rosenbaum, writing for the Chicago Reader, said, <laughs> "Quote: My idea of hell would be having to see the stinker
1: again." Anderson says he he was like reading he felt like the reviews were very mixed when he was reading them but then he said that but but there were like people that absolutely hated it he said he his favorite what he remembered was that one outlet said quote Rather than spending five dollars on Event Horizon, just have a loved one put a metal bucket on your head and hit it with a wrench for an hour and a half because it's exactly the same experience. <laughs> wow, <laughs> oh, that's uh, that's good, honestly. That's like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, that's- uh, and Iveser was like overprotective. He says, like, this was the early days of the internet. There was somebody who actually got on one of the message boards I was on and they called out the dialogue and said, if I ever meet Philip the writer, I'm going to slap him in the face. So <laughs> I like, replied back to the guy. And I'm like, I'm right here. Here's my address. I'll discuss this in the street with you whenever you want to. Oh, wow. <laughs> he said, luckily they didn't respond, but he was like, I still kind of feel that way. He's like, you want to get physical with me about a movie? <laughs> oh, whatever. Come I'm on. From Texas, man. I'm used to this. <laughs> like, let's go. Uh, uh, but, so- uh, I did I did see one thing that I thought was interesting where uh Kathleen Quinlan uh said she she talked to James Cameron afterwards and uh she said she had, she was she was at like a friend's house and James Cameron was there. And yeah, uh, as, you know it happens uh, all the time. It's just the way it is. Uh and she asked him why he thought it didn't work, just since we've already mentioned James Cameron so much. You know, yeah, why not for what it's worth. Uh she said he told her uh people want manifestation they want a manifestation of a creature or whatever uh and she said i told him but i think it's so much more interesting when this the film tapping into your subconscious fears and and we're manifesting it in our minds and he goes yeah but it's film
0: yeah well what about the haunting or the shining james cameron i mean the shining you do get you know you've you've, i guess you their physical manifestation is Jack Torrance,
1: you know, but you could say the same
0: thing about Dr. Weir here. I mean, he is, he is the Jack Torrance character in this that gets kind of like possessed by the ship or vice versa, maybe, you know, but so I don't fully agree with that. You know, I I love you, James Cameron, but we don't always agree (laughs) on these things. You don't
1: know everything, Jim.
0: Yeah. Come on, Jimmy Cameroon. Well, it wasn't until the film came out on, on DVD that it found its audience and became a surprise home video hit for Paramount. Now, that's where I discovered the film, on video. I didn't see this in theaters, you know. Uh, I think because August of 97, I would have been 15. So I, I definitely did not see this in theaters. My parents weren't taking me to see Event Horizon. Uh, though I probably could have convinced them to, considering it looked, you know, the, the trailers do not indicate how dark this movie is. So I, as as like a star, a kid who was into Star Trek, I probably could have taught my parents into taking me to like a space movie because the, even the, the poster and everything just looks like a generic... Sci-fi movie. Uh, I would have probably been shocked that it wasn't, especially if my dad was like sitting next to me.
1: You know, I but don't know. Like if your dad's like an evangelical minister person. I mean, I'm sure yeah. he would appreciate anything that uh showcases why you don't want to go to hell. <laughs> sure. Yeah. It's a. It's, <laughs> this is a it's
0: like watching a religious film and in, in church. You know, like it's what, like what are they the, the, hell hell the, the hell houses? The hell houses. Yeah. <laughs> Like a, man, somebody should do a Hell House that's based on the Event Horizon, like a haunted house based on the Event Horizon. That'd be awesome. I wonder if
1: Universal's ever done that. That's they good. should. They should. They should. I anyway, mean, you got you got the whole Halloween Horror Nights over at Universal yeah, Studios. That's what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Anyway, well, I, Gary, I know the two of us have had we got we have kind of similar backgrounds as far as our discovery of certain films. You know, I, I know you you started watching. Like horror movies a lot younger than I did. I mean, I was watching like classic horror movies when I was a kid, uh, like, you know, Universal Monster, Frankenstein, Dracula, and stuff like that. That was kind of my gateway into horror movies. But you watched like stuff like oh, Halloween a lot younger than I did. But I think by the time Event Horizon came out, we were both, you know, we're both teenagers and we're both renting movies a lot. You worked in a video store, I think, right? Yeah, yeah, I did. Did you did you work shot. in a video store when this came out? Were you working there then?
1: Uh, yeah, I believe I, w- I w- would I've been, this would have been right around the t- time I started a video store. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, when, when I was like
0: 15, 16, 17 years old, I, I got into this phase where I was like renting every horror movie I saw on the shelf. Like if it was in the horror section, I was probably going to rent it at some point. Right. That's and Event Horizon was one of those. In fact, I might've even rented this one when it was like on the new release shelf because I had, I, I had known about it. But is that how you
1: first saw Event Horizon or did you see it in the theaters? Did you rent it? 100%, yeah. Yeah, I, I just remember that I, I rented it and watched yeah. it. And I remember loving it. Like, it blew my mind. Uh, mm-hmm. Just that it was... Uh, it was... You you described it early on that, you know, your first exposure to Cosmic Horror. It was my, probably my first time dealing with something like that. Like, just yeah. that it. it's just this unknowable force or something. As opposed to like a, a creature running around like an alien, you know. Yeah, not a monster that, movie, not Michael yeah. Myers, you know, nothing like that. I even yeah. you know, and it, and it's the thing we we actually talked the other day at a party we were at, but like I was talking about uh I think we got into like just loving cosmic horror. Like I, I love mm-hmm. some of the Lovecraft stuff and the idea of Cthulhu and that sort of thing. And 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 more recently, I've said this a hundred times, so I will belabor it, but uh Clive Barker recently, which I kept seeing everywhere. People would post that as a fact that he consulted on pre-production for this movie. And I can't, I have yet to see like something from the mouths of like Paul Anderson or something. Yeah. I think that's people
0: making shit up on the internet, believe it or not.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> that must be, but it's just like, you can totally see it. I mean, you could, yeah. you could, I mean, it feels like a Hellraiser movie in a lot of ways in that sense, but I love, Now I like I love that idea of cosmic horror, and it makes more sense to not show it because I mean the whole idea of half of what Lovecraft did was it is unknowable. You can't see it. The whole point is not to really see much, if anything, of this. Yeah, I mean he often doesn't even brain breaks.
0: Right, he he often doesn't even like really truly describe something. He describes it in vaguest terms to where your your mind fills in the blanks with whatever right. horrific thing that can come to your imagination.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the reason that Cthulhu is probably the most famous of his things is probably because that's the most descriptive he ever is of anything. Right,
0: yeah, exactly. <laughs> it actually has a physical form. And that's kind of the same thing with this movie, though, is that you never really know what these, for lack of a better term, beings are that live on this the other side of this black hole that's been created. Because all we see are the the only physical manifestations of them that we see if if you can even if you can even discuss them as like individuals or or whatever is sam neil's character once he becomes possessed so you never see any anything else though you know you just see the results of of their influence but you never you never know what's on the actual other side of that black hole you're never shown you're only it's alluded to especially towards the end when sam neil starts you know t- telling them about this universe it's pure chaos or whatever i think that's what he says you know, but that's that's a pretty vague description. That is feels very Lovecraftian. You know, this this universe of pure chaos. Like, and that's that's as much as he's going to tell you about it. Doesn't describe it in any way.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's that's the whole thing. I mean, it's it's like with Lovecraft stuff, like uh, it's it's more about even even the Cthulhu thing. It's like more about like these cultists that are around it that are worshiping this thing, or like yeah, most of your immediate danger comes from people that are wrapped up in this thing more so than whatever the fuck this thing is beyond the veil that you can't quite grasp and uh and and i don't know i love that idea it's even that way like i mean going back to clive barker it's even that way with hellraiser kind of stuff it's in, in the first hellraiser and in the book like it's those are bits and pieces. The most of the story is about the evil that the humans conjure up on themselves anyway. Right, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. around the idea that there is something on the other side also waiting yeah. for you. Exactly. And, you know, I, I don't know how much I really appreciated
0: some of Event Horizon's imagery when I first saw it, you know, back in the late 90s. And I've seen it a few times since then, but uh, there were things that stuck with me for sure, especially the the image of the the core, that, you know, gyroscopic, Core because it's such a cool design. Uh, And of course, um, the image of Sam Neill with his eyeballs
1: missing. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's that's something that sticks with you. Uh, I've but I have always remembered really, the uh, one dude in the blood orgy who's just like, "Here, take my I mean, eyeballs." <laughs>
0: yeah, that's something that I, for some reason, that, that's something that I did not remember. I didn't remember a lot of the blood orgy stuff. You know, uh, from I don't I don't remember, or at least I don't remember how I reacted to it back then. You know, I don't remember that's that that didn't stick with me as much as the the image of Sam Neill
1: missing his eyes. I do nice um stuff. So and, I forgot Lawrence uh, or, Fishburne or, or, was in the movie. So you know, yeah, the different strokes, I guess.
0: <laughs> but uh, yeah, well, I mean, I don't, I don't think I forgot that he was in the movie, but I don't think I, I it, for some reason, Sam Neill is who I always associate yeah. this movie with, even though Lawrence Fishburne is great in it and has a. As big a role, if not bigger than Sam Neill's, you know. I didn't remember like up face and freaky look. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And but Jason Isaacs gets flayed and hung up by hooks, and that's something that I didn't really remember. (laughs) It's really cool. Yeah, it's it's a great great image. But watching the movie now for the first time in in several years, it's I'm I'm a little bit shocked that those images ever made it into the movie. I mean, I know that obviously as we've discussed, Anderson had a lot more of that stuff that ended up on the cutting room floor, but even the brief glimpses of it, whether it's the the blood orgy stuff or, you know, Jason Isaacs gutted and hanging from hooks or the, those glimpses of hell, like, like Jolie Richardson with the barbed wire over her face and things like that. Uh, even the little, little bits and pieces that we see in this theatrical cut are kind of shocking to see in a mainstream major studio horror film from 1997 i mean it might not seem like a big deal today when we're like what 10 movies into the saw franchise but in 1997 that is not the kind of shit that you would see in a major studio movie it just wasn't especially one with a fairly substantial budget you know 60 million dollars is you know that that's a big budget for a a horror film it seems like what paramount wanted but didn't know that they had asked for or something right (laughs) yeah 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 uh, but I think it's that imagery that keeps people coming back to this movie. You know, this, these the, these grotesque glimpses of hell, the the design of the spaceship that we've already talked about a little bit about how intimidating and scary it is. You know, uh, Sam Neil gouging his own eyes out. Like these these images are things that stick with people, and that's what keep, keeps people coming back to Event Horizon. But ironically, yeah, this go, kind of goes with what you were saying these are also the kind of things that probably kept the movie from being a big hit when it first came out. (laughs) Like the things that keep people coming back to it years and decades later are probably what hindered it on its original release. You know, Uh, the movie seemed destined to polarize audiences, especially considering it's not only like dark and, and, and gory and violent, but it also has this very, it's got a downer of an ending and a very ambiguous ending, which As we've learned over the years, audiences do not like their endings to not be wrapped up with a pretty little bow. And that does not happen in this movie. You don't know what's going to happen at the end of this movie.
1: I always feel like these movies are a little ahead of their time because, like, some of these rely on internet word of mouth or something, you know? And so it's like, like you said on DVD, when people can just check it out for less of an investment than. It starts getting word of mouth and that sort of thing. Yeah. I don't know how this thing was really advertised specifically or like what that looked like all the time, but um, I could see that this being the kind of movie that the right people wouldn't necessarily find it, you know, immediately, right. like in the theater. And it's not until later when somebody's like, oh, by the way, you know, if, if you're into this, you might like this kind of movie. And because to some, it's probably going to look like a sci fi movie or something right and you know just not i don't know it just feels like this has a, a an audience but you know you gotta really nail yeah. down marketing or something
0: and i'm not sure that paramount knew how to do that because they were kind of gobsmacked by what the final product was because it wasn't what they were expecting i think so i yeah. i think that probably extended to their marketing and they didn't really know do we advertise this as a horror film do we advertise it as a sci-fi film well you can advertise it as both it can be both at the same time, which is what it is. Uh, but it definitely leans more horror. I mean, there, I mean, there are horror elements in this movie that honestly don't make any sense logistically. Like there's thunder and lightning the whole time that they're in this place, which gives it a big haunted house vibe. But uh, from a you know scientific standpoint, <laughs> like why is there thunder and lightning on this spaceship? Uh, I, know, I know there's like a some kind of space storm outside, but you still would not be able to hear the thunder, which we all know. I mean, I don't care about those things. I'm just saying it's they, those things are there to create a more of a horror film atmosphere. Cause so they're, they're definitely, this is definitely a horror film. It's a, if you were to put it in one genre, I think it's a horror movie that just happens to be set in space.
1: If you want to uh, get into the science aspect of this a little bit more too, there is a, uh, video i put this down because i am not going to try to recreate it in dialogue here uh the uh the video is just by this by roanoke gaming is the name of the place and uh and it's called the event horizon was one giant hallucination explained and oh, interesting and they this guy like i i don't know what he does in real life or something but he goes through the science from through the whole movie Basically, oh wow, and uh, even, even talking about you know how long it tra- takes to travel, how long it would take to travel to Neptune, like what that's like, what it's like for faster than light, all this stuff, it gets it really detailed. But basically, when he gets to the point of the finding the event horizon, um, he goes through how the first explosion that happens that they're Gravitational waves that go through the ship, and then he starts explaining what this is in physics and how that affects people's bodies. And it is, um, it's intriguing. It's, it's nothing. I say is going to make it sound as intriguing as it is, but it's just to the the layman's way. I can put this is basically he's explaining how it impacted each person differently. But one of the things the gravitational waves would do was it would first impact your brain and cause separation ah. of tissue in your brain that would affect like different components of your brain and make you see things. Uh, the different sections that would go first <laughs> would cause you to revert to seeing things from your past or really living your past. And, uh, and it would just basically how these people are going crazy in, in space. And this is probably the same thing that happened to them. And I can't imagine that Eisner or Anderson purposefully did this although i brought up that stuff earlier about eyes being really interested in physics yeah Um, to mention that maybe maybe it's possible but this guy makes it sound like they could have fully intended it to be this way like this is how these people would have deteriorated and this is like what they would be seeing and how they would be reacting to it and it's 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 pretty amazing
0: yeah i mean that's Incredibly interesting, and I love stuff like that when I come across it, but also like I think it's a lot cooler if they're just seeing visions from hell. You know, like I think that's a, I think that's a cooler idea. It, it, you know, as, as opposed to there being a practical scientific explanation for. Don't it. get I me like wrong. I
1: think that this video was made by a demon that is like, wow, these guys got really close. We better science this away. Yeah, this is quick. propaganda. So, yeah. <laughs> we better, we better science this away so that nobody yeah. thinks much more about this.
0: Well, after the unexpected success of Event Horizon on home video, Anderson and Paramount, they started discussing assembling a director's cut that would reinsert some of the deleted footage, but it was soon discovered that the footage had not been very carefully stored. uh, And that a lot of it had gone missing. It was actually, it was found in like a salt mine or somewhere that had been stored. I read a really weird story. They found it like 10 years later and it had just been completely deteriorated at that point like they didn't archive it because this is in the early days of like dvd and people weren't saving the stuff to do like special features and stuff it's just not something that was thought about so paramount i guess had just thrown it into storage and it had just been deteriorated but over the years there have been rumors of the lost footage being discovered but nothing has ever really come of it and it's unclear if the footage actually still exists or if it has been just completely lost to history but this lost footage it's kind of a it's kind of a major part of the legend surrounding event horizon these days you know with with hope that this could be a snyder cut type situation where uh, a film that was maligned upon its original release is given a new life by allowing its director the chance to reinstate his true vision for the film uh but I don't know that that's ever gonna happen it doesn't seem like it is uh, it doesn't seem like this footage is around for anyone to actually
1: watch it's probably better what Uh, nowadays, Paul W.S. Anderson doesn't get a chance to go back and, uh, corrupt his original (laughs) (laughs) but even without the existence of this footage, uh, Event
0: Horizon has been majorly reevaluated over the last quarter century since its release, developing a, a pretty big cult following and is largely considered to be Anderson's best film. Uh, would you agree with that assessment that it's his best film? I mean, looking at his filmography, I'd have to
1: say so. I think (laughs) it's a low low bar. Yeah, I I feel bad. Uh, You know, I've I've gotten this way where I'm a little softer about this thing. I don't want to let rip on people too much. I just his obviously Anderson uh, is a successful filmmaker, and he's got some stuff that, like, hey, listen, my family loves some damn Resident Evil. Uh, So good for them. But I never have, and so. Nothing nothing hits for me with Paul W.S. Anderson like Event Horizon, I don't think. Yeah, yeah. So,
0: I mean, this is, I think almost anyone, anyone who you asked if they were familiar, anyone anyone who you asked who was familiar with Anderson's filmography would probably agree that this is, you know, this is the best thing that he's done. Uh, in fact, after Event Horizon was released, Anderson showed the film to Kurt Russell. It was just before they were going to get started on making Soldier. And Russell said to him, you know, I don't care what people think of this movie now. In 15 years' time, this is the movie you're going to be glad that you made. And he's right. I mean, Anderson. When you when you hear Anderson talk about this movie, he seems very proud of it. He seems very proud of what he accomplished here, even though it was not the the cut that he necessarily would have released into theaters. And Anderson has gone on to become a successful director. Uh, you know, while his movies are rarely, if ever, embraced by critics. Uh, many of them have been huge commercial hits, everything from, you know, we mentioned it earlier but the first Alien vs. Predator movie to most of the Resident Evil movies, which star his wife, Mia Yovovich. And while many of those films have made lots of money at the box office, and they do have their fans, Event Horizon is definitely the one that I think has endured the longest, becoming uh, a classic, a minor classic, I would say, uh, of the modern horror era.
1: Yeah, I actually had that Kurt Russell story, too. I I think that that's a really cool thing. He said, uh, you know, and I think it's in that Inverse article, um, that oral history. He mentions the Kurt Russell thing, and he says, uh, yeah, he was right. It finally got the reaction now that I was hoping it would have 25 years ago. Uh, Even if something you make doesn't get the reception you initially want, it'll find its audience. It'll find its place and it'll be appreciated. Just might take some time.
0: Yeah, might take some time, and that's—I mean—that's what we talk about on this show, right? We talk about cult movies, and I mean, not every movie we talk about is a cult movie. Titanic found its audience pretty quickly, but a lot of times, like that's what a cult movie is—a movie that was, you know, it was either ignored or it did not get the reaction that the filmmaker wanted when it first came out, uh, or or just kind of disappeared, and then it gets rediscovered later. Now, now Event Horizon got rediscovered pretty early on. It got rediscovered, you know. A year later when it was released on video, but it it found its audience. And then, like you said before, there's word of mouth. Somebody rents it. They tell their friend, hey, you got to see this cool ass you know, sci-fi horror movie that I saw. And then they tell somebody else. And then eventually it becomes a beloved film. And this is a movie that 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 really that's exactly what happened. And that's why there are still, you know, people talking about it. Twenty five now, twenty six years later uh you know a lot of the articles that we found about the making of this movie coincided with the film's 25th anniversary the, the fact that websites were interviewing cast and crew members for the film's 25th anniversary is enough to tell you that the movie has gone on to become
1: uh, a well-loved film yeah it's definitely in people's psyche it's it's weird Paul W.S. Anderson I mean this is the most like uh well it sounds like maybe except for like uh shopping and stuff that he had before, but he see it makes sense that he did Mortal Kombat and Resident Evil because I do feel like a lot of his stuff has like a video game feel to it. Even his most recent was like Monster Hunter, which I never saw, but it just looked like this is a video game. It may be even based on a video game for all I know. Like he he's like a better UV bowl. <laughs> yeah.
0: There are many worse UV bowls out there. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Well, that's it, I think. I think that's the story of Event Horizon. And uh, this is another fun roulette episode. We do have a couple more roulette episodes. I think we've got two more two more coming up. Yeah, two more coming up. Uh, But we're not doing one for our next episode. Our next episode, we are having the Cinema Shock. We'll call it the Cinema Shock Christmas special. Is what we're going to do. Uh, So me and Gary are going to be back. Uh, The episode should come out right before the holidays, right before Christmas. And we're going to be talking about not one, but two classic Christmas films. You want to let us let our listeners know what we're talking about, Gary? We'll oh, yeah. Spill the beans. Let the cat out sp- of the bag.
1: Here we go. The uh, the 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 Santa's satchel is open. And here it comes. Here's <laughs> your present, kiddies. No, we're watching uh, both part one and part two of Silent Night, Deadly Night. That's right.
0: Silent Night, Deadly Night. We're watching it's a it's a long it's actually a there are five movies in this franchise. Well we're gonna are going say, to be talk,
1: heads up. I, I've got all of them. So
0: I'm going I, to do watch yeah, them. <laughs> I do too. Yeah. I do too. So I've got all five. And I will be watching all five of them. But we are going to specifically devote our episode to parts one and two. Maybe our maybe we'll do our little further viewing bonus episode on the other three. So if you want to watch those along with us, you know, go on this ride with us, go for it. Uh because you know, I mean, didn't Brian Yuzna direct one of them? And yes, Monty he Hellman, I think, directed one of them, which is fucking crazy to me super. that Monty Hellman directed the Silent Night, Deadly Night movie. But we're going to be talking about Silent Night, Deadly Night 1 and 2, which is only one and a half movies, really, if you think about it. it's it <laughs> true. I I think the first 40 minutes of part two is just a recap of part one, if I remember right. <laughs> but somebody should do a super cut of those. And like, yeah, put them together into one into one like long cut, like a like a two and a half hour cut of Silent Night, Deadly Night one and two.
1: Yeah, and if I'm really not mistaken, too, like um, Clint Howard's and I mean, we just talk about the other sequels, like Clint. I Howard's think he's in like one. part
0: five, right? I think and he's-
1: like. He's in four or five of the Mickey Rudy. Bill Mosley. Bill Mosley's
0: in there somewhere. I think in part three or four. Yeah, it's it's a it's a weird ass franchise. Mickey Rooney is in one of them. I don't understand <laughs> this. <so> I'm excited. <laughs> yeah, is, yeah. Well, we'll have to look into that when we research for this series. But we are going to be talking about Silent Night, Deadly Night, Part One and Two on our next episode. So if you want to watch those along with us go find them somewhere out on the internet. Uh, I know that I think they're all streaming. I'm sure that they're all pretty easy to find. Uh, they're also pretty easy to find on discs as we both bought them <laughs> like last week. Yeah. They're uh, easy so to find. That's, yeah. They're very easy to find. So watch them along with us. And then we'll be back after that for two more roulette episodes. And then we'll get into our, our next series after Todd returns to the show. So that's all I got for this week, Gary, where can you be found on the internet for our listeners to follow?
1: I am on all the social medias at this is Gary Horde. That's what you need to know.
0: And I am at Justin underscore Bishop. That's, uh, you know, Twitter, X, whatever it's called these days. (laughs) I keep, it's it's just so weird to say X.com. You know, it just doesn't have a flow. It doesn't have a ring to it. Uh, It's, uh, it's 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 also a complete shit show. So, but I am still on there. Uh, and Letterboxd, which is if you really want to see me be active on social media, follow me on Letterboxd. So that is definitely where I'm the most active there on in Instagram. You can find the show at cinema underscore shock and all the usual places. Cinemashock.net for episode archives, merch, links to our Discord. Uh, we'll have some fun events coming up soon. We'll be announcing a, another event that will be happening at the end of December, we hope. We haven't finalized anything yet, but uh, we'll put some information about that on the website as well. If you uh, if you want to attend a you know a Cinema Shock live event here in Greenville, South Carolina, if you know if you're in the Greenville area or you want to travel, but uh, that's all we got. Until next time, may the wings of
1: liberty never lose a feather, and be excellent to
0: each other.